Well, this evening, and I'm anticipating this to take up this Lord's Day evening and next Lord's Day evening, God willing, we're looking at the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit as beheld in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the title. Long one, isn't it, just? But there it is, the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you dear people will be saying, ah, we've heard some of this before. And, and indeed, you have. This is uh, something of the material that I covered at Jacksdale Pilgrim's Pass a month or two back. And indeed, which uh, I also, when I was in Salisbury speaking at the seminary uh, open study day uh, yesterday, uh, was moved to address. But I thought we might also perhaps consider it here somewhat differently and perhaps somewhat more at leisure than otherwise able to say at uh, Jacksdale or indeed at Salisbury yesterday. Hence, we're looking at this over uh, two particular evening sermons. I mentioned there quite a few of you have already heard this or much of it. Perhaps there'll be some extra material there. Reminds me of uh, the story that uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones told of a a preacher who was invited to speak to a uh, gathering of, of people, a large assembly, and, and he preached uh, a sermon, which uh, when he was about to preach it, realized that he'd preached it in quite a few of the churches represented by the people that were at this august gathering. And uh, so somebody noticed him, he was sort of rather anxiously sort of looking along the, the congregation, looking on the rows of the people, looking at their, their faces, uh, and he was asked by his friend, oh, are you looking to see if there is uh, somebody who, who's heard your sermon before? And he said, no, I'm looking to see if there's somebody who hasn't heard this sermon before. And uh, such was his experience there. Well, anyway, I press on regardless. And uh, we're taking uh, really as a, as a beginning point, but uh, we'll come to this perhaps towards the end of the sermon, Isaiah chapter 11, because there you will see this which is spoken of. As the Messiah, who else? But the Lord Jesus can be the rod coming from the stem of Jesse and a branch growing out of his roots. But the Lord Jesus Christ. And of whom then we see this, don't we? The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And goes on to elaborate what that will therefore mean in his life and ministry. Well, it'll be the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And that's there, and perhaps other passages already springing to your mind where similar things are said, is spoken of, unmistakably there, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll have more to say about that when we come to it in a moment. But here really is a subject which we might have to say very quickly takes us into very, very deep matters, very, very deep doctrine. We touch here upon, well, the Trinity for a start, persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And already mentioning the Son and the Holy Spirit in the same breath, we see we are speaking necessarily Trinitarian matters. And then to further add to this and the depths that we are attempting to consider, well, we're also speaking of the Incarnation. And in speaking of Christ, the word made flesh, then we are talking of the two natures, but the one person, divine nature, 
human nature, but one person, one Lord Jesus Christ. Not so divided up that there is a sort of divine Jesus Christ and then a human Jesus Christ. And he thinks of himself at times as being human, but then there's a flick of a switch and then he's thinking of himself as God. No, there's no such kind of division in the person, but there is a full bringing together, unity, integration of the person that he knows exactly who he is, knows himself exactly to be human and divine and at the same time, and that it doesn't cause confusion to him or conflict in him or that he is left at times perplexed about precisely who he is, what he should say. Should I do this acting as the son of God or should I do this acting as a a servant here? There, There is no confusion. We'll never understand that, of course. We'll never understand the hows of that. But I think it lies well beyond us, but we affirm it. Therefore, we say we are in very deep water here. And when we're touching upon these things, then we're always just a whisker away from heresy. We're a hair's breadth from saying something that is not quite right, something about him that is not quite there. And how indebted we are to the great councils of the churches back in the days of the church fathers who carefully and precisely enunciated what is true and what is not true about him, carefully worded it to prevent, really, heresy. There's plenty of heresy around them. That's what inspired them and stirred them to action and made them go to the Bible and to work out, well, what does the word of God say? What is true and what is not true? And how do we work out what people are saying and who's right and who's wrong and who's got it nearly right but not entirely? And how we can therefore more precisely, for the sake of the church and her welfare, spell out these things. So we are, of course, indebted to them. But of course, still, it is easy to get it wrong, though we stand on giants' shoulders when we are following on from the implications of what they taught. There is always danger, and in a way, danger in this particular doctrine, because there is not a lot written about it. The ministry, the work of the Holy Spirit, in the ministry, the work, and the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, just as described, the glorious Christ, the holy Christ, of whom we could say, There, the exalted Lord, Ephesians chapter 1, I'm just turning to that, this this Christ that we learn of, Ephesians 1, say from verses 9 and 10, being made known to us, we read the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, and which are on earth, in him. Just in case we miss the point, in him, in Christ, in that one Christ, that glorious Christ, all things are going to be gathered together in him. But whether they're on earth, whether they are in heaven, both of them, in him. Or as we see it spelled out to us, verses 19 to 23, Paul prays that our eyes will be open to We can be asleep, can't we? Surrounded by truth, surrounded by a great Christ. Well, one of the things he prays that we will see in verse 19, chapter 1, Ephesians, is what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Well, that is very comprehensive, and Paul's thought begins with a prayer that we will know the exceeding greatness of the power of God and illustrates it by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll know that power, same power. But then having brought to our attention the resurrection, he then follows through the implication of that. And his train of thought under the blessed inspiration of the Spirit takes him to the very fact that he's ascended. We'll talk about that appropriately, can't we, there? And the ascension of Christ, and that takes him up to the right hand of God in heavenly places far above. With that exceeding greatness of power, well, there's an exceeding greatness of far aboveness here. All principalities, powers, when we think of those, the dominion of darkness, Satan's workers and emissaries, or indeed that great angelic host, all God's angels worship him. Those principalities and powers, well, he's above them. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. That Lord Jesus Christ, who exceeds any name, any title, who whatever title we give to him, well, he's that and a bit more. Not only now, but always for eternity. And if we think that that is just something peculiar to the Apostle Paul, then the Apostle Peter has similar things to say to us. First Peter chapter 3, verse 22, we're told he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. That is comprehensive. And whatever we say, and we're going to be dwelling here particularly on the humanity of Christ, whatever we say about that, that does not detract from any of that, which we have just read. Indeed, it is that Christ, not simply divine, if we can put it in those terms, but equally human, that Christ who has gone far above all principality and power. It is that Christ who has angels and all subject to him. It is that Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. Not a dehumanized Christ, not one that has shed humanity. No further, his humanity is now, putting it this way, the humanity of the future. Glorified humanity, what that is to look like. So whatever we say, and this we come to because we're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in our Saviour's life and experience, then none of it detracts from any of that that we've just said. So we look to understand these things because in a sense we owe it to God who's given us this book and in this book, well we read, didn't we there, the account of the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, and unmissable there, the work, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's written for our instruction. Not written so we'll understand it all fully and entirely, but written that we might cautiously, carefully move forward with what is revealed. That we might not just think this is a problem, think this is a difficulty, think this is something mighty confusing and wish it wasn't there, but rather as something that is there to actually enlarge our thoughts of Christ, to give us clearer better thoughts of him, that we might love that Christ, the true Christ, more. Not that we might just have theological conundrum to exercise our minds, but actually that we can worship 
more fully in spirit and in truth, and that we may obey and confess this Christ, filled out into our understanding, enlarged before us to comprehend more of what actually in then scripture is telling us. Scripture is suggesting to us. Scripture is making you and I marvel all the more over. Well, my first heading, which is probably going to take up the most of this evening's sermon, I'm not uh, intending preaching at huge lengths uh, on either of these two sermons, but give ourselves time perhaps to ponder these things more carefully. But my first heading is this, a real humanity, right? A real humanity. That's what is to be expected, particularly here we're thinking of a sinless humanity. What is to be expected of that humanity is what we will find, therefore, in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. That his humanity, his human nature, is not fictional. It's not something that is an appearance of it. In some measure, human, but in a way diminished human, because overpowered by divinity, as though the fact that he is both God and man, means that there'll be some undoing of what his humanity is, some superseding of it, some overpowering of it by his divinity. Well, not so. Indeed, we need him to be fully human. We can have nothing less. Otherwise, we have no salvation. You see, the divinity and the humanity, Christ needs to be both in all their fullest sense for us to have a saviour who is going to be able to save us entirely, totally from our sin, and who is going to be able to confer upon us righteousness, to have us clothed, and we're thinking about this this morning, won't we, in righteousness divine. So his human nature is not a fiction. When we see him, very human, that is not something that is just a little bit sort of just lived out, a bit performative, if you like. But no, it is both real and necessary. It is both required, needful for us that he should be that, and that it should at times puzzle us and surprise us as to what this will therefore entail for him, what the implications are for him as fully human in order that he can be fully our saviour. So what we expect of him, both in a sense in sinless humanity, but also as someone who is representing sinful humanity that he must be all of the things that we read in Scripture. We mentioned already he is one person, but acting always consistently with what is required of both natures, what is required of him in terms of his divine nature, but what is required of him in terms of his human nature, both in terms of his sinlessness, but also in terms of him representing us in sinful humanity. And he must be for us, All the things, indeed, which we'll be going on to see in more detail, both later tonight, but also, God willing, next week. They are the actions, and they are the words. They are the teachings. These are the ways in which the time is spent by the God-man, by the one who is both God and who is man at the same time. There is a book, which uh, after I indeed I prepared this this message for my first outing of it, which I, I found helpful, um, largely helpful, because fortunately it didn't contradict anything I already said. But J. Douglas Macmillan, the 
theologian of note from previous generation, wrote a slender volume, but very valuable volume, called Jesus, Power Without Measure. And he wrote this at one place. The doctrine of the servant role of Christ and the thought of his being the specially anointed servant of the Lord automatically draws attention to Jesus as man. The focus is on the need of being equipped, empowered and strengthened in this servant role. It is precisely this thought of servanthood and the conditions intrinsic to it, such as subordination or dependence or need, which have made people draw back almost instinctively with the feeling that such ideas are untenable in association with one who is really and truly God. But he goes on to say this, yet the Bible witness demands and requires such association and for a very profound reason, teaches that those conditions were and had to be part of the life experience of Jesus. The reason is simply this, Jesus was just as truly human as he was divine. He was man as well as God. He was the God-man. And so you begin to feel that there is the weight of scriptural evidence. But we see why scripture has that weight of evidence, because that is the saviour that we need. And the terminology there of servanthood is very important. That whole aspect of him coming in the form of a servant. And I think it'll be next week, but we'll be quoting that very famous passage in Philippians 2 that takes us to his servanthood. That is the most valuable title that he has, very important one, often used one in scripture. And it couples up well with another title that we use of him, our mediator, one who is able to function between us and God, to represent us as man to God, and equally to be able to bring what is required on the Godward side to help us as fallen human beings. And that role, which again is similar to his servanthood role, it's just talking about that, that's the function in which he served as a servant to be a substitute for us before God and to come from heaven to bring the things that we as fallen, needy human people have to be. But to be a servant, well, J. Douglas Macmillan has said it, and the conditions intrinsic to it, what that is going to require, what that needs to be in order to be true, what a true servant of God who has human nature has to bring to it. He uses, doesn't he, the words like subordination, dependence, need, and which make us, as he hints there, more than hints he says it, doesn't it? We draw back. We think, no, no, that, that cannot be. <laughs> and one thinks that one doesn't, one of John the Baptist, and we read, as I say, in Matthew chapter 3, and the, the baptism of our Lord, and how as our Lord came to be baptized, this uh, ordinance conducted there, which was for sinners. They confess their sins and are baptized. And yet he came. And John tried to deter him and prevent him and saying to him, I need to be baptized by you. I'm the sinner here. You're the sinless one. And I need to be baptized by you, not me baptize you in that way. And the Lord says, permit it to be so now. 
for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. But there, his identity with sinners required that he must therefore stand with them in being baptized and say that I take ownership of their sin and I myself will be regarded as a sinner on their behalf because I'm going to bear their sin. But in a way, we must also think that we could try to prevent him from having to be in need, dependent, subordinate in terms of human nature, in terms of how he will fulfill his ministry, that both because of our sinfulness that he is required, therefore, to do remarkable things, to be baptized, and of course, remarkably at the end of it, to be on the cross, but also in terms of being sinless humanity, that also requires of him sonship and subordination and servanthood, that it is to fulfill all righteousness, that he must also indeed himself too have the help and the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in him and through him. How else can we imagine a perfect servant of God to be? How else can we imagine somebody who is sinless, showing us what perfect obedience, perfect love for God is, perfect love for neighbor will be? How will that be done? Will it be done through self-sufficient humanity? Will it be done with human resources without the help of God? Well, we would recall from that, wouldn't we? And so how will he fulfill his living? And then moreover, beyond, when he comes into his public ministry after his baptism, how, how will he perform those duties? Well, yes, we know he is the son of God, divine nature. But in this respect of his human nature, well, will he just live it autonomously, just rely upon his own kind of innate human resources, his own sinless perfection? Does it almost exclude the need of God's help? Of course not. And how will he show his obedience? How he will show that in his humanity, he is living in obedience to God? Well, he will do it, therefore, reliant upon God's help, reliant upon God's leading. He will do it by being obedient to the will of God and speaking up that obedience and speaking of how he is being obedient, not drawing attention to himself. Look what I'm doing in my own humanity, but look that I'm serving God and I'm a worshipper of God. And I too am loving God. And I encourage and instruct you, this, this is how it will look. It's how sinless humanity should behave. Not independent, not autonomous, but actually in humble dependence upon, yes, the Holy Spirit of God. He's actually showing us something about our own discipleship and what that should be like. He is proving to us, this is how faithful human beings should live. Dependence and obedience, the help of God mediated to us through the Holy Spirit. And so he is fulfilling all righteousness. It is to be so, for thus it is fitting. And though we might marvel and say, well, can he not do this simply because he is the son of God? Well, yes, of course he could. But he will not because he's got to be a servant. He's got to be a mediator. He's got to show us and live a perfect life of righteousness to demonstrate what a righteous human being should do. That is to live 
That's why we see him praying with dependence upon his heavenly father, looking to him to supply all his need and all his help. His prayer life was not a fiction. This was not some, again, performative act, but was real and was heartfelt. And when we read of how he offered up prayers and petitions with cries and sobs, when we realize it was a real prayer life, this wasn't just something incidental, a bit of fiction, a bit of unnecessary embroidery, but was a real lived out prayer life. There is a perfect prayer life that a perfectly obedient human being should live. And so he demonstrates there that he will pray to our heavenly father, his heavenly father. And of course, we can see here where so many other religions, cults stumble and fall because they simply cannot see this. They cannot see the necessity of this because they do not realize what it requires on behalf of us sinners for us to be able to have a servant sent from heaven who will save us from our sins. Because you can see the obedience that he's living in dependence of the Holy Spirit, living with the help of the Holy Spirit, is going to bring a righteousness that is a perfect righteousness. That's how it ought to be lived. That's how a human being who had no sin would live. Not in some autonomous sense, but in proper reliance and proper faith and proper love for God, which will be in the power and in the help of the Holy Spirit. All of the glory of that life then becomes ours to receive when we are justified by faith. So we see that we understand better and more clearly, and these had to be, these are the conditions intrinsic to servanthood. When, for instance, in John's Gospel, and how often in that we hear our Saviour talking to our eyes and minds, they're very, very modestly, very modestly, about who he is. Indeed, John 5, verse 19, when the... People are arguing with him that he's making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does, in like manner. It's the help of the Holy Spirit, the ministry and the mediation of the Holy Spirit, that these things become so for him. That's what he's seen, what the Father does. And elsewhere again, this tone, this note of submissiveness, this servanthood, the mediator who necessarily to be our substitute must take this position, not there looking upon equality with God as something to be taken by force. John chapter 5, just as another small instance of that, verse 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Often he says, who sent me? Or says, I only do what I hear from my Father. I only act upon those things that he has shown me. When I speak, I do not speak on my own authority. The words that I speak have been given to me. Such things as this, everywhere, all the time. And that is necessarily so. That has to be so. That is him speaking there as a servant of God, as God, yes, but in a way also there as that perfect human being, speaking as a servant sent from heaven and in perfect submission to the will of his father, which is what we should be, in perfect submission to the will of our heavenly father. 
is proving to us, demonstrating to us what a perfect life would look like. And we therefore see that this is true humanity, real, proper humanity, that our Saviour truly is living a perfect life of righteousness, achieving what we fail in, accomplishing what because of sin we simply cannot. And we therefore depend upon this humanity too. We depend upon his divinity, but we also depend upon his humanity, this kind of humanity. And so J. Douglas Macmillan says, all the graces, powers, attributes, and gifts of human nature are exercised and used in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think upon that. What is it telling us? Well, it's telling us that this is matchless condescension, that this is a lowering himself, that this is a lowliness of position that he, the Son of God, is taking and is showing to us, proving to us that there are lessons of plenty. We're going to draw them more next week when we come to them. So we are also shown that it is vital to defend this humanity of Christ. So much of church history has necessarily been taken up with defending his divinity. But we equally must defend his humanity. For look, First John chapter 4 and the first three verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. So not to believe in this humanity is not to be in a good place spiritually. It's to be on the wrong side and to actually be under the colours of the Antichrist. We defend we're not the humanity of Christ fully. The humanity of Christ that scripture holds to us, not a fictional, not an afterthought humanity, not an unreal humanity that doesn't really have to do all these things. No, a humanity has to do all of those things. Every part of it has to represent us, sinful humanity, to be our substitute, but to live a life that a perfect human should live in order to confer upon us a righteousness, a true righteousness that has been proven, that has been exhibited, and that has been done necessarily in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see how the Jehovah's Witnesses, we see how the Christadelphians, we see how a host of different groups have gone astray here, because in the end they haven't realized what's needed for our salvation. They haven't known how full and rounded and mature and perfect a saviour we need. How we need divinity, but we also need humanity. And so they've stumbled, I would say, some of the verses we've read in John chapter 5, and they've stumbled over a host of other places and would either exclude his divinity, also exclude somehow his humanity, that they would miss the point and fail to see. As such a saviour, we need the scripture assures us such a saviour we have. And though it may exercise us much, be beyond us to fully account for all of this, to be able to account for every scripture and to say, ah, oh, I can see what's happening here. It's rather showing us, no, we can't really see all that's happening here. But we know why, in a sense, it has to happen like this. That it's necessarily 
like this, because that is the Savior that we necessarily need to save you and me from our sins. That Savior, living that life, to go forward to that cross, to die there for the sin of his people, and rise, take our humanity on, on into glory, and to be there waiting for us when we leave this place and go to join him. Well, God willing, we'll look in more detail at the Bible's witness and follow through some of the passages, both in the Old Testament, but more particularly in the New Testament, including that passage we read of his baptism, and see what instruction that that has for us about the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.